Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Genesis. Today we're going to read a couple verses out of Genesis chapter 1 and then move on down to uh, Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Reminder, we are at the very, very beginning of our series on the book of Genesis, looking at the the foundations of our world, the foundations of the people of God, seeking to understand better the world we live in and how we as humans fit into that world and how we as Christians fit into that world as well. And so we are still within the very beginning foundational chapters of the book of Genesis and we'll be there on through Genesis 11. But today we will begin in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then we'll move down to Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord had not sent rain on the earth and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God performed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are there also. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. 
The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, as we consider your word today, as we consider this fuller account of the creation of humanity, we ask that you remind us that we are the image of God, that we are created to reflect you and to resemble you and to represent you. And remind us that part of that resembling and representation is the ability to learn and to know. Help us to learn more about you and help us to know and love you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French physicist, philosopher, theologian, and mathematician. If you're all those things, you've got a lot of things going on in your mind, and so oftentimes to clear his head, Pascal would go out and, and walk through the woods in the community near the community where he lived. But Pascal's mind was always running, so always carried with him a, a handful of scrap paper and a bunch of pens, little pens, like stick pens. And if you were to see Pascal come back from his work, you would see his coat just covered with these little scraps of paper stuck to it. What he would do is he was thinking about his philosophy or his math or his physics or the theology. He would write little things, little thoughts that came to his mind down. It's almost like a post-it note today. And he would stick these thoughts to his coat as he walked through the woods. And that's what you would see fluttering on his coat when he came back in from the woods. One of the thoughts that he had, he was thinking about craving, longing within the hearts of humanity. And he wrote this down. He says, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim? But that there once was in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are there. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. What Pascal was, was tapping into with this thought on cravings and helplessness is something that we as humans have been created with. A craving for true happiness and a helplessness in figuring out how to find it. But the question is, where does this craving for true happiness come from? I believe it comes from how we were created. And it comes from how humanity existed in life before the fall. And so today, as we work through this fuller creation story of the creation of humanity, we'll look at how our craving is for a relationship with God as it was a relationship with others as it was, and yes, our relationship with evil as it once was. Before we look into those three cravings, we're going to go through and look at an overview of the, of the account of the creation of humanity. Now, many scholars look at this as a competing creation account. They look and they see that some of the, the details are different than the creation account of humanity in Genesis chapter 1, and they say, well, this... This must be some propaganda compiled by Jews and Christians in order to, to foist their belief systems upon other people. But I want us to see that this is not a competing account of the creation of humanity. This is a completing account of the creation of humanity. It does not offer two different stories 
of the creation of humanity, but Genesis chapter 2 gives us a fuller sense of understanding what we read in those couple verses from Genesis chapter 1. It takes and fills in the bare details uh, that Genesis 1 did not give us. This is also the beginning of one of ten sections in the book of Genesis. We had the prologue last week, but there are ten sections or books that follow the prologue in the book of Genesis. And we see this in the opening. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. The word the account there is translated from a Hebrew word that means story or genealogy. And there's ten times in the book of Genesis that that word occurs, and it always occurs at a shift in the story. This one happens to cover verses chapters 2 through 4. The next time we see this would be in chapter 5, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 9, and chapter 10, verse 1, 11, verse 10, 11, 27, 25, 12, 25, 19, 26, 1, and 37, 2. Now, if you didn't get that list of scriptures, that's okay. As we come, up, as we come across them in the past few decades, as we go through the book of Genesis, that's a joke. It'll only hopefully be about a year. I'll point those out to you again as we come through. So this is the first full section of the book of Genesis. And so when we see this is the account of the heavens and the earth, it's a signal to us to pay attention that something is going to happen. Now, heavens and the earth, that's a, a literary tool that the author uses. It's called a, for those of you who are keeping track, it's called a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. And basically what that is, it's two opposite terms that indicate we're talking about the whole of everything. So heavens and earth, how are they opposite? Well, in relationship to where I'm standing right now, where are the heavens? They're up there. In relationship to where I'm standing right now, where is the earth? It's down there. So those are two opposites that means everything in between. So this is the account of the entire universe. And what's the important thing that we focus on in this account of the entire universe? Once again, it's the creation of humanity and the placing of humans within the garden of God. And that's the next place where we start as we see the garden here created. It starts out in a desert setting that needs irrigation because there is no water and there's no one to till it. So there's no plants and God makes a mist come up from the ground. He also puts a river that flows through the garden. And once it leaves the garden, it breaks into these four rivers that once again, show the, the boundaries of the Garden of Eden. Now, many people throughout history have tried to figure out where the Garden of Eden is based on the clues we find here in Genesis chapter 2. The reality is geology and geography has changed so much since the creation of the world that there's no way to accurately pinpoint where the Garden of Eden is, but Moses gives us some clues as to where he wants us to associate the Garden of Eden with. In order to see these clues, we have to remember that this book was written to the Israelites to kind of motivate them to move from Egypt to the promised land. And so we have these four rivers, two of which we don't know where they are, two of which are still in existence today, the Tigris and the Euphrates. So if you picture the Tigris and Euphrates as setting the eastern boundary of the Garden of Eden, and these other two rivers would probably set the western boundary of the Garden of Eden. Where are these two rivers? Well, we have some clues in other places in scripture. Havilah is listed in cities in Arabia and Cush. We read Cush in our call to worship is typically um, uh, part of Egypt, that northwestern part of Egypt. So those are the western boundaries 
of the Garden of Eden. And this almost makes sense if you think about it, because that was called the Fertile Crescent in the dawn of civilization. That's where the most fertile area of known world was, was between the Tigris and Euphrates and the Red Sea. And so what Moses is saying is the land where I am getting ready to take you is a land where God dwells. The land where God is waiting for you to meet you like he waited and met with Adam and Eve. And so this was, it's, this was another motivation to get the Israelites to move on from, from Egypt to the promised land. So God goes through and he talks about raising up the mist. The desert situation is fixed with irrigation that God provides and he puts man in the garden to till it. But before he puts man in the garden, what does he do? He crafts man from the dust of the earth. The word here, the picture here is a sculpture, a sculptor creating a sculpture. Remember, we talked about the image of God last week was a three dimensional representation of God on earth. And each and every one of us is that three dimensional representation. And Moses says that God formed humans by his hand, lovingly crafted them out of the dust of the earth. And actually, this is a process that still goes on. David picks up this theme in Psalm 139, 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Each and every one of us is handcrafted by God. Put together by God in our mother's womb. And then God breathes breath into this image. He breathes the breath of life. Now, it is true that all animals breathe. And that's something that we do have in common with the animal kingdom. But we are the only created being that is described as giving, getting God's breath. And God's breath is more than just the air we draw in and the air we exhale. God's breath is what it is that makes us a living being. We are more than just our bodies. We are more than just our souls. We are bodies and souls together. The soul could not exist without the body. The body could not exist without the soul. Several hundred years before Christ came to earth, a group of philosophers came up with this idea of dualism. To where the soul is actually the most important thing in a human being and the body is just this earthly trap that the soul is trapped in. And the goal of life was to get the soul free from the trap, from the prison of existence. Now, you didn't do this through taking of your life. You did this by subjecting your body to either all the pleasures of the world or to abstinence from all the pleasures of the world. But the body was seen as something different that we had to bring into, into um, unity with what we felt about ourselves in our head. Sound familiar about anything in our culture today? We still suffer with this problem that the soul, the inner person, is more important than our body. And we must go through surgery and hormone treatment in order to bring our body into unity with what we think our mind says. Scripture says, no, we are body and soul together. And what we look like on the outside determines what we are on the inside. And what we are on the inside determines how we interact with the world around us, with the flesh and blood of our body. God created us male and female. He created us in his image. And those things are important. So God forms Adam out of the dust of the ground. He puts them in the, in the garden and he gives them a job. He says to to tend the ground and take care of it, to work the garden and take care of it. We oftentimes think that work is a curse. And yes, work is cursed because of the fall. Work is futile, as we talked about in 
Sunday school a little bit today, work is hard and the world fights back against us when we work. But work is something that was given to us in the garden. It is something that is ordained by God. And whatever you're called to do in your work, you are called to glorify God in that. If you're a sewer cleaner, I don't know if they do that, but if you're a sewer cleaner, you're called to glorify God in that work. If you're the president of the United States, you're called to glorify God in that work. Man is given a job. He is to tend the garden. He's to till it. He's to make it a place where plants can grow. He's to expand the boundaries by tilling the rest of creation so that plants and God's glory can reside in those areas. And he's to take care of it. Take care literally means to guard. And these are words that in the book of Leviticus are used to describe the Levites and their work in the temple. They were to take care of the temple and to make sure it was a place where God's glory could dwell and reside. And they were to guard it from outside influences. That idea of guarding from outside evil influences, it's something that comes in in chapter 3. That was Adam's first work. Adam's first job was to guard the garden from evil. And of course we know that he failed in that. So God puts Adam in the garden and he says, it is not good for man to be alone. This is the first time we see God saying that creation is not good. And what is not good about it is that man should be alone. And so God is going to create a suitable helper. Now, suitable helper is a very important picture for us. The idea of helper there is not a subservient role. The helper is still in the image of God. And it's suitable for him in that it helps the man complete the job that he has been given to take care of the garden, to guard the garden, to fill the garden with other little images of God. And so what God does is he puts Adam into a deep sleep. He takes a rib from Adam. Matthew Henry says, woman is not made out of man's head to top him nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Another commentator by the name of Casuto goes on to say, just as the rib is found at the side of man and is attached to him, even so the good wife, the rib of her husband, stands at his side to be his helper counterpart, and her soul is bound up with his. Before God creates Eve, He parades every animal before Adam and he says part of your job of dominion is to name these animals. But also part of that was to to develop within Adam's heart the sense that there was nothing suitable for there there for him in order to fulfill the mandate that he has been given to fill, to have dominion, to take care of and to tend the garden. Can you imagine Every animal has been blessed by God, we're told in Genesis chapter 1, has been blessed by God to fill the earth with each of their kinds. So there's a male and a female cow, there's a male and a female duck, there's a male and a female dog, all these different kinds of animals have pairs. And you're sitting there and you kind of know from God that you've been mandated to fill the earth and these animals have been mandated to fill the earth and by golly, something's missing in me. Because there's just me, but all these animals have a pair, have an equal, have something that will help them fill and reproduce according to their kind. And so God puts Adam into a deep sleep. And I would imagine that as he goes into a deep sleep, he's kind of in this sanctified state of wondering what's up. 
something's not right as God says something's not good. And then when he wakes up, there's the solution to the problem. And how do we have a tendency to read this poem? Oh, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. I'm almost done with my Bible reading. Two more verses to go. How do you think Adam would have said this? This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This solves the problem of it not being good that I'm alone. This woman, Adam actually changes his name here. It's really interesting to see. Adam is taken from the root word for ground. So Adam is literally named after the earth that he was formed from. But what does Adam say now? He says, this is woman. Because she was taken out of man. See it? Even in the Hebrew, it sounds very similar. It's the, the words are very similar. We hear it here. Here we have woman because she was taken out of man. Adam renames himself because he names the woman after himself. He is no longer a function of the ground. Adam and Eve are now the joint image of God and a function of humanity. And Adam can now fulfill the mandate to fill the earth and subdue it. He has begun the subduing of the earth by naming the animals, but he can now fulfill the mandate to subdue the earth. And we could stop right here when it comes to marriage and who in our culture should or should not be married. Because this is a very important thing right here. We think of dominion, and Adam could begin dominion, but he needed the equal, completing image of God by himself, by his side, in order to finish the dominion of the earth. Adam couldn't even start filling the earth by himself, could he? And God's design for marriage is such that one man and one woman are one woman are to be married together because it is part of filling the earth. Now, I mentioned in Sunday school, we, we've discussed Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, and, and, and I've been trying to separate Genesis chapter 1 and 2 from Genesis chapter 3 because I want us to see the glory of creation, a perfect creation before sin enters the world. But we live in a world that has fallen, that is no longer reflects its original mandate. And people are born with desires that are broken. People are born with bodies that don't work the way they're supposed to. But that doesn't mean that God's original design changes because sin has entered the world. If I have a desire that's antithetical to God's law, whether it's a desire to kill or to have adultery or to lie, I'm supposed to stuff that desire in a sense for the glory of God. I am supposed to flee from that sinful temptation for the glory of God. Sexual desire is no different. Desire to change who we are on the outside is no different because we are created as the image of God and God has designed how this world works. And no matter what our culture says, we don't change the truth of the word of God. No matter what our Supreme Court or our Congress or our president says, we do not abandon the truth of God's word. And God designed us male and female for one man to leave his parents and cleave to one woman. And if the Bible stopped right there, we would have a full theology of marriage as it is. But thankfully, the Bible doesn't stop because there's so many other things that we need to know about life. 
But Moses goes on after Adam wakes up from his deep sleep and Moses moves on and he he gives this commentary. He said, for this reason, he said, man shall leave his father and mother. And that's the first thing about marriage. Marriage prefigure this marriage prefigures all marriages that come after it. Do we leave our parents to cleave to our spouse? Some people do that well. Some people don't. Sometimes parents won't allow children to leave and they follow them around wherever they go in some way, shape or the other. But they a man is supposed to leave his father and mother. A woman is supposed to leave her father and mother and start this new family relationship. Moses goes on to say that after they leave, they are united to one another. This is a covenant relationship. One commentator said that we are we most reflect God's covenant relationship nature with his people when we stand before the church and say, I do. We commit to stay with that person through thick or thin. Now, because sin has entered the world, God does give provision for divorce under very certain and and uh, specific circumstances. But this is a covenant relationship and they will become one flesh. This is a total unity of humanity. It's emotional, it's spiritual, it's financial, it's physical. Whatever part of our life that exists, it is supposed to be within total unity with our spouse. It doesn't mean that we're the same. It doesn't mean that we become the same person who who we all just both of us start talking at the same time, say the exact same words you know, together. We're different, but we're unified in all things. And as we look at this picture of marriage, as we look at this picture of Adam saying this poetry, seeing the fulfillment of of what was lacking in his life. Do we cherish our spouses for those of us that are married? Do we cherish our spouse? Do we wake up in the morning or come home from work in the evening or come home out of the garden in the afternoon and go, this is my wife. She is beloved. She is my wife. She is my suitable helper. And God has crafted her specifically for me. Or do we say it's supper ready? How come the kids are noisy? How come the house is messy? And I was talking to a man one time who was. It looked to me that he had a pretty good marriage and I asked him about it. And he said, well, you know, at one point I didn't have as good a marriage as I have now. He said, we weren't going to get divorced or anything. He said, there was no cheating or anything like that. It was nothing big. There was just this sense of discontentment that pervaded our entire house. He said, and I prayed for a long, long time for God to change my wife. He said, but one day it came to me that that was the wrong prayer. He said, I needed to pray that every morning when I woke up, every day when I came home from work, that God would help me cherish my wife. He said, God answered that prayer. He helped me love her the way that Adam loved Eve. He helped me treat her as someone that God had crafted, especially for me, because he had. He said, and that changed my life, that changed our marriage. And, and you know, ultimately, he said, it probably did change my wife as well. He said, but I wasn't as concerned about that as I was before. Because God had to change me. Do we cherish our spouse? Do we pray that prayer when things aren't right at home? Lord, help me cherish my spouse. Do we think about how God has crafted our wife? For those of us that are married, that God has crafted our wife specifically for us. 
Now, we do know that in the world we live in, the marriage reflects the church and the relationship between church and God, and ultimately Jesus is our bride. Or we are the bride of Christ as the church. Jesus is our husband. And we find our ultimate fulfillment in him. We find our ultimate completion in him because he reconciles us to God. But for those of us who are married on this earth, God has given us that spouse, and we are to love them and to cherish them. So what about the cravings? What does the cravings that we talked about, that craving for true happiness, how does this passage teach us about those cravings? The first I mentioned was a craving for relationship between God and humanity. Harmony is the word that describes that relationship. Next week, we'll look a little bit at Genesis. Actually, we'll look a lot next week at Genesis chapter 3. But in Genesis chapter 3, as, as Adam and Eve are in this, this state where they are tempted and they fall and they falter, we see that God comes to visit them because that was his habit. Every morning and evening, once again, probably one of those merisms where morning and evening being opposites that talk about the whole day, God fellowshiped in harmony with humanity. We know on some fundamental level within our sinful, broken hearts that that's how things are supposed to be. We are supposed to be in harmony with God, but we're not. Adam broke our ability to not sin. And then we followed right after Adam's example and we continuously sinned. And yet the second Adam, as Paul describes him in, Gen in Romans chapter five, came so that we might be reconciled and enter once again into a harmonious relationship with God. There's a lot of talk in the church today about the historical reliability or the historical truth of Genesis chapter one and two. And many people look at this as, well, there's spiritual truth in there, but not historical truth. Richard Gaffin has a book. It's called No Adam, No Gospel. I can't summarize it much better than that. If there's no historical Adam, we have no hope. Because if there was no Adam to mess up, there's no second Adam to reconcile. If there's no first Adam to sin as our federal representative, there's no second Adam to reconcile as our federal representative. If this isn't true, we have no hope. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are the most to be pitied. We are to be reconciled to God. We are to live harmoniously with God. And Jesus has come for that. Secondly, we have a craving for the relationship between humans and evil in the garden. What was the relationship between humanity and the evil in the pre-fall garden? There was none. It was a relationship of absence. Isaiah talks about near the end of his book as, as the prophet Isaiah is talking about the new heavens and the new earth. He talks about the road to the heavenly Jerusalem being a road that no, not only does not have sin, but does not have temptation. That's exciting to me. That is what we hope for. That is what we live for in relationship to God. No, not only to not sin, but to not even be tempted to sin. To not even have to worry with the prayer, Lord, I can't handle this temptation on my own. Will you take it from me? Lord, I don't know if I can keep from yielding to this temptation. Will you give me the strength? That makes me jump for joy to think that I will never have to pray that prayer again. There was no relationship with evil in the garden. And thirdly, there's a craving within us for that Edenic, that Garden of Eden relationship between husband and wife, which was marked by bliss. 
marked by a knowing that, hey, what is lacking in my life is completed by this woman. What is lacking in my life, if, if you're a woman, what is lacking in your life is completed by this man. Naked and not ashamed. This is not a prescription for worship. There's actually a church in Virginia that has started offering naked worship in order to fulfill what God calls us to be in Genesis chapter 2. That's not what this is. This is a description of complete harmony, complete unity that has really nothing or not as much to do with the physical as we think. It's a spiritual, it's an emotional bond. It's that I can be vulnerable with my wife and not be scared that she's going to be chased away by my sin. My wife can be vulnerable with me and she doesn't have to worry about being scared that I'll be chased away by her fears. It's this idea that there's such bliss that we can share everything we are with the other person and not have to worry about condemnation. That also can only be healed and given to us by Christ and his reconciliation. Pascal's craving. We've taken that quote of his and we've shrunk it down to say that we have a God-sized vacuum within our heart. Pascal never actually said those words. It's a summary of that quote I read at the beginning. Those cravings within us can only be filled by the God who created us. Those cravings within us can only be filled by the fact that he has sent his son to live for us and die for us. To be the second Adam so that we might be reconciled to God. So that we might be free from temptation. So that we might be given the strength to avoid temptation. And so that we might be reconciled one to another as husband and wife. As the church and our Savior. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father. Fill those cravings in our life so that we might know you, so that we might be closer to you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. As we were singing the final hymn, I realized I had left something very important out of this sermon. I feel that I had clearly proclaimed the truths of this passage, specifically the truths about marriage and about who we are as male and female. But in proclaiming those truths, I neglected to remind the congregation of several other truths that need to be kept in mind as we proclaim these truths. The first thing that we do, the first thing is that we do not live in the Garden of Eden. We live in a world that has been broken by sin, and we live in bodies that are ravaged by the effects of sin. Most of us see the effects of age and disease, but we forget that sin also affects our desires and our ability to identify ourselves. However, even though these desires may be affected by sin, it does not give us permission to act on these desires. The second thing we need to remember is that our identity is defined in Genesis 1. We are the image of God. Yes, that image is marred by sin, but we are still the image of God. This means that when we confront people with the truth of Scripture, whatever that truth may be, we must do so in a way that does not demean that image of God. We must attack the sin, not the sinner. Finally, we need to remember 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Do you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. End quote. None of the sins listed in verses 9 and 10 are worse than the others in the sight of God.
any of those sins will earn us the fires of hell. And Paul says that some of the members of the church of Corinth were guilty of those sins and in danger of eternal condemnation, except that the gospel had become real in their lives. No sinner is beyond salvation. No sin, except carrying your rejection of the gospel to your death, can overpower the saving grace of the gospel. I was able to say these things to the congregation prior to the benediction. I wanted to make sure you heard this as well. May the love of God, the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Amen.